Blog Talk Radio. Hi, this is Marnie Svedberg, and I welcome you to Marnie and Friends, a place where leaders share practical, helpful, and encouraging ways to get anything important done faster, better, and smarter. Right now, I encourage you to sit back, buckle up, and join us for fun, laughter, practical help, and clear thinking, the kind of discussion that focuses our attention off of the fluff and onto the most important stuff in life. Again, welcome to Marnie's Friends. Let's get going. Hi, everybody. This is Marnie Swedberg, and I welcome you to Marnie's Friends with our guest today, Nancy I. Sanders. Today, you're going to be understanding some writer's training, how to make a great first impression using eight solid strategies to craft a compelling lead. During this hour, Nancy Sanders, our guest, who, by the way, is the author of nearly 100 books for children, including groundbreaking how-to book for children's writers called Yes, You Can Learn How to Write Children's Books and Get Them Published and Build a Successful Writing Career. Her website is nancyisanders.com. And during this hour, she's going to be helping us understand how to use the eight strategies of dialogue action character traits informative news repetitive sounds famous quotes descriptions of settings and questions to craft a compelling lead and right now i get to welcome you hi nancy hi marnie it's so great to be here on your show with you thank you for having me well, thank you for being here. A hundred books is a lot of books. <laughs> I always remind people they're children's books. <laughs> so my novel yeah. writing friends, it takes a lot longer. <laughs> so have you been, you know, uh, pumping out four a year since you were four years old, or how have you been doing that? Yes, I actually started at birth. <laughs> right before you yeah. were born. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, yeah. yeah. Oh, that's it's, awesome. It's a lot of fun. Yeah, it's about four to six books a year although every once in a while I do a really long one and then that one takes uh, about nine months to a year too so yep wow wow and have you stayed with pretty much the same uh, publisher have you been with lots of publishers how does that go lots and lots of publishers I have some small publishers I've been published by and then I have some big ones such as I think I've done 19 with Scholastic with Zonder Kids and Tyndale. So just a whole variety of things. Wherever God has opened the door, you will find me there. <laughs> oh, that's just great. Well, we're excited that you saw this open door and joined us today. Yeah. Let's go ahead, Nancy, and dive right in here. We want to get through all eight of these strategies this afternoon during the program. And I want to give you time to really help us develop each one because maybe let's before we dive into those, let's just talk about why it is so critically important that your lead is compelling. Well, I think just our society in general, you know, we live in what I like to think of as a, a sneak peek society. We'll take a sneak peek at anything, you know, but if it's right. not going to grab right. us, we will keep on clicking and keep on moving to something else. Um I just know my own personal way of doing things. Like I'm on Amazon looking at a look inside the book. If that first or second page doesn't grab me, I look at a different book. And if you're in a bookstore, we do the same thing. And I know as a children's writer writing for kids, it's even more important because even if you hand a child a book, if right. they're not right at the beginning, they'll put it down and go play a video game. So. And I kind of like to think of it as we're fishers of men, you know. And I like to think of it as having a bait on a hook. And we're just trying to bait our reader in. And so that's that's so important. Love it. Okay. Well, let's dive right into the first strategy, which is dialogue. Yes. And dialogue is a great way to grab your reader because it pulls them immediately into a scene. Um, I got an example from a picture book. It's called I'd Be Your Princess, A Royal Tale of Godly Character. It's by Catherine O'Brien. And the very first sentence is, If you were a king, I'd be your princess, said the little girl to her father. Can you feel Mm. how that kind of pulls you right Mm -hmm. into the scene where the little girl's talking with her father. And if you also are writing an action story, 
a lot of um, high action going on. Dialogue is an excellent tool to use because you're putting your readers right into the middle of a scene and you're getting them started with a bang. Um, If you're writing fiction and your story is character-driven, now, do you know the difference between like character-driven and plot-driven stories, or should I kind you, of explain that? Why don't you explain that? Yep. Yeah, a character-driven story really focuses on the character. You'll see how the character changes over the story. You'll have a lot of internal thought going on, and so a dialogue is a great way to start a story like this off because the reader immediately can hear usually the main character talking, and so you immediately hear their voice and you connect right away with that character. And versus a plot-driven story is more about what's going on. You can have different characters. You can have different events taking place. So if you're writing a character-driven story, dialogue is a good technique to use to start to craft a compelling lead. The some other authors, oh, uh, some authors always um, kind of have a, like a trademark. They always start yes. with dialogue, or they always start with this or that or the other. Do you do that, or? Well, actually, I have a um, series of four books that I'll talk about later that I did start with one technique because I wanted a trademark for those four books. And so, I see. Okay. You, yeah, so you can pick one of these. And you just don't, these different techniques we're going to be talking about, you don't want to just randomly pick one. You want it to match the purpose of your story. And that's why I'm saying here, you know, if you're having a character-driven story, dialogue is a choice. And there's going to be different tools we'll talk about that will be good choices for the same kind of genre. Like for hmm. even um, nonfiction, you can also start with dialogue. I know a lot of um, our listeners here probably enjoy writing nonfiction for the Christian market. And I was looking at uh, Boundaries with Kids by Dr. Henry Cloud and Dr. John Townsend. And in their introduction, they actually started with dialogue. Um, hmm. Here's what they said What is this new book you and Henry are writing? asked my seven-year-old son, Ricky. It's about Mm -hmm. boundaries and kids, I replied. So you can see right there, you're pulled into it through the dialogue. So, so yeah, it's a Well, and it kind of, in that that one, it kind of gives the author permission to just explain the purpose of the book in the first sentence. (laughs) Yes, yes. And that's what, actually, when you're looking at great leads, I mean, you can pick up any book. And you'll see the kind of lead, and it may or may not be the best one. <laughs> but, but if you're looking at books that have the best and compelling leads, there is a strong purpose and a strong hook, and it usually you get the whole theme of the book in there somewhere, you know, mm. which is which is a very masterfully done craft. So dialogue is good to use for many instances. Hmm. Well, it sounded like you had one more thought that you wanted to share there earlier when I interrupted you. <laughs> okay, would that be... Uh, or maybe you already or, caught it. I caught it. <laughs> okay, good. good. Okay, <laughs> great. Well, let's go ahead and move along to action then. Okay, action, um, and we touched a little bit about that in dialogue. Um Action serves the same purpose as dialogue in many ways. You're putting the reader in the middle of a scene. But unlike if you're writing a character-driven story where you're using dialogue to let the reader hear the voice of the main character, action is very good if you're having a high-paced action story. You want to have action on that first opening sentence, opening paragraph. Um, I'll give an example. I just kind of wrote this one. Bow-legged Bill, the famous cowboy, twirled his lasso and flung it through the air. It landed around the mountain lion's neck, and Bow-legged Bill dug his boots into his stirrups and pulled on the rope. You know, you're right there with Bow-legged Bill. (laughs) And and for a kid's book, that pulls them 
right in. And so action, you'll actually see a lot of children's books start with action because that pulls kids right in. But fiction for adults is also good to start with action. Um, And here's just a sample that I wrote. The horse, Lucky Charm, raced down the racetrack, hoofbeats pounding, and mud splattered over Katie's goggles as she tried to keep him under control. You know, you can just, you're pulled right into that action, and you want to keep reading to see what's happening next. Um, is it possible Is it possible to um, maybe inadvertently set an unrealistic expectation that the whole book will be action-filled if the first sentence is so? <laughs> yes, you do have to be careful, and that's where if you are writing more of a character-driven or if you're writing a book where the setting is very important, and we'll be talking about starting with a description of the setting, like some books are really important in their era and their time, and so you want to start with more of that description of that era rather than a high-paced action scene. Because, yes, you can set up um, unrealistic expectations. You can be mixing the wrong genre if you're choosing a high-action scene and your book isn't a high-action um, book. You know, you can set the wrong tone. So you do want to be careful when you're picking this lead. Um, one thing I wanted to talk about for action, starting with an action lead, some people when writing nonfiction, you can start with a high-action scene And I actually have sat in at writers' conferences um, for some editors of magazines where they say you have to start your story with a high-action scene right in the middle. Like whether it's Mm. battling a storm at sea, you know, a firefighter, you know, they want you to grab your reader for the nonfiction article in the middle of the worst thing that's happening to them. Ah, so, yeah, so that's okay. a good yeah, that's a good time to use a high action scene for that type uh, of uh Do you feel like action is possibly the strongest uh lead? I I would not say that, no. I think each of these leads has very valuable um strengths and depending on the genre and the theme of your article or book, um, each one is good to use at different times. So, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Oh, good. Okay, well, this is Marnie. We're talking today with Nancy I. Sanders of nancyisanders.com. She's the author of over 100 books, including the book. It's a how-to book called, Yes, You Can Learn How to Write Children's Books, Get Them Published, and Build a Successful Writing Career. We're going to come right back and talk about the third um, solid strategy to create creating a compelling lead character traits. We will be right back. Womenspeakers.com is the largest online directory of Christian women speakers in the world, featuring over 1,700 women speakers from every experience level, denomination, and fee range, some near you. Visit Womenspeakers.com to find the perfect speaker for your next event or to get training to be a speaker, author, or media personality. All training and connections occur online anytime you have time. Find a speaker, add a speaker, or become a speaker at www.womenspeakers.com. Welcome back. This is Marnie, and womenspeakers.com is always a busy place, but right now, this time of year, it is super busy with a lot of event planners planning their upcoming year and into the new year for speakers. So if you haven't checked that out, go ahead and check that out over at womenspeakers.com. Today, our guest on the program is Nancy I. Sanders, and she is an author, and she's here sharing with us First Impressions Writers Training, Eight Solid Strategies to Crafting a Compelling Lead. We're going to talk right now, Nancy, about character traits, but this is a good lead, so maybe explain how that works. Yes, a character trait um, people may not be familiar with starting this, but this is a very effective uh, tool to use if you're especially writing a character-driven story, we talked about that um, earlier, that means that it's really focusing on the main character and how the character changes 
over the course of the story. And so if you start with a character trait, that is a great way to draw your reader in. For example, children in uh, the early elementary grades love to read books in a series about the same character. And if you have a book like that, and it's even true with um, adult fiction, starting with a strong character trait draws the reader in. For example, Nate the Great, just an all-time children's classic that kids love. And here's the lead that Nate the Great starts with in most of his books. He says, my name is Nate the Great. I am a detective. I work alone. So there you're seeing what kind of traits he has. And kids just pick up a book after book, and it starts kind of the same way in most of the books. And they're like, oh, boy, we get to read about Nate the Great again. And, um, huh. yeah, and they just picked the Newbery Award. And the Newbery is given every year to the best written children's book of the year. And so it was interesting to read the opening paragraph in that book. It was Kate DiCamillo's book, uh, Flora and Ulysses, and here's the opening paragraph. Chapter 1, A Natural-Born Cynic. Flora Bell Buckman was in her room at her desk. She was very busy. She was doing two things at once. She was ignoring her mother, and she was reading a comic book entitled The Illuminated Ventures of the Amazing Incandesto. <laughs> that opening paragraph to this best children's book of the year started with a character trait lead. You find out three important things about the main character right there. She's a cynic, she's ignoring her mother, and she loves comic books. And what made this book, one of the things that made this book win the best award of the year is because those three traits really develop over the entire theme of the book. And she got them all right there in the first paragraph. <laughs> you know, mm. that, that is a masterful lead. Now, I just I looked up Beverly Lewis's prologue in one of her newest Amish books because Beverly Lewis is the top voice in Amish Christian fiction. And so I was looking at The Last Bride, which is part of the series of Home to Hickory Hollow. And here's how she started her book. It says, I did everything right, everything. Mm. See how see how that's a really strong character trait, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah, and so immediately the reader goes, "Oh wow, this gal is just tired of doing everything right. You know something wrong is going to happen, and so you're just immediately pulled in, and you wanna you wanna read about that, and so." <clears throat> The thing about doing a character trait to start your compelling lead with a really strong character trait, you have to have your character developed before you can craft that lead. You know? Well, I was thinking as you were talking about the three we've talked about so far, dialogue, action, and character trait, you almost have to have, you know, most of your book written before you can do any of these. Isn't that true? You do. That is so true. And, you know, most of my books that I have ever written have been where I pitch the idea to an editor. Um, They ask to see a proposal of some sort. And then I sign the contract before I write the book. Hmm. And so because I do most of my writing that way, I have to let the editor know what's going to happen in my book before they give me a contract to sign. <laughs> so, so it's really interesting because I've talked to a lot of writers I teach a lot of writing classes and things, and a lot of people don't want to write an outline. They don't want to flesh out the idea of the book. They want to kind of just write the book as they go. And the one drawback of that is is you can't be earning a steady income as a writer if Mm -hmm. you just kind of go as a whim and just let your own journey. So I encourage people who don't like to do outlines and who don't like to plan the book before they write, just to 
take a season of writing, whether it's a week or a month, and just really let your brain take off with the story and enjoy creating the story as if you were writing the whole thing. You know what I mean? But mm-hmm. just do it in a in more of a brainstorming mode. And then you can get to know your character enough to um, to write a compelling lead and to to get to know your character enough to do that successfully. And also, I do recommend uh, knowing when you're working on a manuscript that the last one of the last things you will do is go back and work on your beginning. And that will help you. Even though you actually start, you know, you go through it, to know in the back of your mind that when you're done writing your manuscript, you are going to go back and work on your compelling lead. Then you do have all the tools to write an opening with a strong character's trait. Does that make sense? Absolutely. And I'm I'm smiling because I remember my first book that was published by St. Martin's Press. I had sent it in. They loved it. They sent, you know, sent back the manuscript, all read, sent it all back in. And then the editor called me and she said, you know what I really need is, she said, I really need a stronger beginning. I need yeah. a stronger opening. Nancy, I remember how intimidating that was because I thought I'd given my best work, you know? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> and have yeah. To sit down and make a better beginning. And yeah. so that beginning is really important. One of the things I wanted to go back and um, touch on was you mentioned how especially children love to track with a character. We're we're all like that. I'm thinking of, you know, the, the TV shows that go on for seasons and seasons, you know, Monk and, you know, there's different shows and, and you get to know the person in the program and follow them. It's the same in books. I remember my kids when they were little and the boxcar children and they would each relate to a different member of the boxcar children family and, um, you know, (laughs) run around and call each other their names. And we do, uh, we do really live vicariously through, through the books that we read. And as an author, um, you want to do that. So like in, in your writing of 100 books for children, how many times have you kept the same characters? And uh, Like do you do half and half, or is it almost always new characters for you? Well, um, I have actually done series, because if you're, if you're repeating that a character, then you're talking series. Series, and right. So I act, yeah, I actually have done several series in my career, and right now I'm working on a series for Focus on the Family for the Adventures and Odyssey books that they have for the Mm -hmm. Imagination Station. So, yes, we have the same two main kid characters in that series, and then um, there's the main adult characters, Wit, at Wit's Mm -hmm. End. And so, yes, so there, and for those, you really do get what's called a Bible, a character Bible going where (laughs) where you know your characters yes (laughs) have you done those before yeah yeah and so you can keep the same things in the different books well and for the for the person who's writing their own series you want to create this bible of your own for your characters so that you keep them in context so they don't all of a sudden randomly do something that that person would never do. <laughs> exactly. And, and, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And so I actually have file folders that I call detective files, you know, and I make them up for each of my characters. And and uh, one thing I recommend is for people to interview your characters. Have you ever done that for mm. any of your, you know, where, where you sit down and, you ask your character in your head, what's your favorite color? You know, what's who's your best friend? What's your favorite food, your worst enemy? You know, and so those interviews really help, too, for you That's to That's so fun to really develop yeah. that character. Yeah. I love that. And let, that kind of um, ties into our next uh, our next strategy, which is informative news. So maybe yeah. explain how that one works. Well, informative news, if you want to, can take many shapes. And so if you're having a character-driven story again, it can be something very informative about your character. Um, For example, in To Kill a Mockingbird, the famous classic, um, it opens with 
When he was nearly 13, my brother Jim got his arm badly broken at the elbow. That's informative news about your character, okay? And so it can be shocking news, like if you're doing an article. 100 families went bankrupt in your neighborhood last year. <laughs> you know, It can be shocking news. It can be exciting news, such as private millionaires are now funding trips for people like you to live on Mars. It can be funny news, yeah. It can be funny news, such as studies have found that dogs like Hershey's Kisses more than dog biscuits, you know. It can be different kinds of news. The key here is to choose informational news that will really appeal to your target audience, who you're trying to reach and will also be a good introduction to your manuscript. So that's the key. If you're going to use informative news, that's a big key right there. So the difference between action and informative news, then, is Uh one is written in the present active tense, and the other is written in the past tense. Is that correct? Well, it can be. Uh, probably the biggest difference between starting with an action scene, whichever tense you write it in, and informative news, is in an action you're putting the reader in a scene in the middle of something going on. Same with dialogue. The reader is in the middle of a scene when you're building a scene. Whereas informative news doesn't have to be a scene. It can be uh, information. It could be transitional. Does that does that make sense? Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. You know, there, yep. there's the difference between those two. Yes. Mm-hmm. Is there any time where you should avoid um, starting with informative news? I mean, is that ever a bad a bad one to use? The only time that I can think of is if there is a magazine who says in their author's guidelines they don't want that type of openings. So if they're saying they want uh, action scene to be their lead, or if they're saying they they want a summary to be their lead, you know, sometimes some, some publishers aren't specific in their writer's guidelines, but some are. And they will tell the writer exactly what they want. And so that would be really the only time I could think to not open with informative news. Because even in a fiction story like To Kill a Mockingbird, um, this news that they open their first sentences when he was nearly 13, my brother Jem got his arm badly at the, broken at the elbow. That news is what the entire book develops over until the almost final scene where uh, Jem is saved by Boo Radley and almost killed by Mr. Yule. And so the whole book opens with that first sentence, but it builds up to that scene as the climax of the book. And so, so that's how that informative news really shaped that book. Plus, we're all like wondering how did that happen, you know? So it's a really good hook. I think that the thing that's carrying through on all of these is mm-hmm. is that you can have a you can have a compelling lead that doesn't work if you yeah. just pick one of these. You have to pick one that you're going to be able to develop all the way through the book. Excellent. That is an excellent. Yes. And even a magazine articles like I'm thinking when I write for uh, this one particular children's magazine that I write, I do write some nonfiction for. Well, when I evaluate the nonfiction that they already published, a lot of their little one or two sentence leads are these informative news things. And so I see that in the magazine articles that are already published. So that tells me, ah, they like these informative news to start out the lead for their little nonfiction magazine articles. And so that's what I choose for that. That's such a great tip, too. And I don't know if you guys caught that, but um, what Nancy just shared here is a huge strategy for actually getting published is to know your publisher. What do they like to publish? What is their favorite approach or style? 
to study what they've already published. Um, that is yeah. all. I, I think that's always the best way because it's pretty insulting to them. Uh, first of all, it's a waste of your time and their time if you send them stuff that isn't something they could publish because it doesn't fit their genre or their style. But uh, if you go ahead and take it even farther than, okay, I know this writes to children and it's fiction, but if you know exactly which type or which direction they're coming at things, you have a much better chance of getting in the door. Maybe real quick before the next break here, do you have maybe a word of encouragement for someone who's not had anything published yet but they're hoping to get in with a publisher or a magazine, um, what would be your maybe your insider secret for getting that first book or contract or that first article published? Yes, I do have a quick thing. I call it the triple crown of success. I encourage people to submit to the no-pay, low-pay market. I still do today. I write stuff all the time I don't get paid for because there are a lot of publishing markets, especially magazines, markets who can't afford to pay their contributors in in uh, money, but they publish you, they're eager for submissions, there's a lot of small magazines out there like that and if you can start submitting to these places, you'll get published almost guaranteed several times in the year ahead and the cool thing about it is is you learn how to work with editors, you gain self-confidence, you gain um, experience writing, and those editors don't want to stay in the low-pay, no-pay market. So as they move up, they take you with them. I've had that happen <laughs> numerous times. <laughs> Interesting. So, yeah. Yes, and so that I tell them to be, people to be doing that all the time. In fact, I just landed one of my biggest contracts because there on the contract to sign with a big-name publisher was an editor I worked with years ago at a much, much smaller magazine, and she recommended my name for that. that <laughs> awesome. <laughs> awesome. Yes, 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 oh, yes. great. Well, this is Marnie. We're visiting today with Nancy Sanders of nancyisanders.com author of over 100 children's books. We're going to come right back and talk about repetitive sound as a compelling lead. We'll be right back. What's your next step? Are you tired of scouring the Internet to find the training you need to take you from where you are today to where you want to be? Stop searching and start moving towards your goals with over 150 targeted training modules available to you at Marnie.com. You can learn how to speak, how to write, how to get published, how to get media coverage, and so much more, all available at Marnie.com. That's M-A-R-N-I-E.com. Welcome back. This is Marnie, and we are doing another training today with our guest, Nancy Sanders. So excited to have her here. She's the author of over 100 books for children, plus the book for children's authors called Yes, You Can Learn How to Write Children's Books, Get Them Published, and Build a Successful Writing Career. Her website is www.nancyisanders.com. Nancy, let's move along and talk about repetitive sound. Now, it's kind of an interesting thought to open a book or an article with a repetitive sound, so maybe you can help us out with some examples. Yes, I thought I would start with examples. So here's an example I just wrote just for this. So, clink. Clink, clink. Kate absentmindedly dropped the ice cubes into the tall glass she was holding, then poured in pink lemonade until it was full. Her thoughts were with Jared, fighting the newest wildfire deep in the heart of the Colorado forest. Did he have his safety tent nearby to protect him from the sudden wall of flame? Mm. So by adding a repetitive sound, it adds a sensory detail. And any time we can use our senses by adding sensory details, it instantly draws your reader in. So here's another example. Drip, drip, drip. (laughs) The steady water falling from stalactites to form puddles on the floor of the dark cave where she was hiding was slowly driving Rebecca insane. Yeah. <laughs> both of these have something in common. Um, uh-huh. Both of those examples have something in common. The sound is a fairly simple, common, ordinary sound—a clink or a drip—but yeah. there, it's immediately followed by the thought or sensation of danger. 
Yes, yes, for those two. Now, another example is actually a way that I frequently write this one children's story that I have in a magazine article that um, uses the same character. It's a dog character, and I frequently will start his with a repetitive sound. Um, Well, I've used this a couple times, sniff, sniff, sniff. And then I'll say something like, Dudley followed his nose down the hallway, across the living room floor, and out through the doggy door. You know, so there's not the danger in that one. You know, but but you can the sensory pulls the reader in, just unconsciously. They don't realize it, but they're they're listening now, and it's it's so great. So when you can do a repetitive sound, that is a very way to craft good way to craft a compelling lead. And especially if you do it in a multiple of three because of the rule of three in literature that right. is there. So Now yeah. I'm assuming I'm assuming there's a period between these with a new sentence for each word. Well, you can do it different ways. Um the way that I wrote them here in my examples was yes, I put a period between each word. I have seen it with commas between each word and then a period after the third. Um the biggest thing is, though, they are in italics usually. Ah, okay. So that it's All a right. sound. Yes, yes. So. Yeah. Well. Yeah. And is there a kind of story that this works especially well with? Uh, probably fiction, you know, a fiction story. Um, again, this is the same as using dialogue and action. It's in the middle of a scene. So some of the others, uh, informative news and character traits, don't have to be in the middle of a scene. But if you're putting a sound in there, you're showing the reader, you're letting them hear what's happening right there in that scene. So Yeah. That's, yeah. Hmm. Cool. Let's let's go ahead on to famous quotes. And, and maybe I'm going to say this is maybe the one that I see the most, uh, maybe not in the first sentence, but definitely um, on the first page of each chapter in many new nonfiction books, you've got a quote. Yes, <laughs> yes you have a quote. Nonfiction articles, even on the Internet, you'll see a lot of these nonfiction things start with a famous quote. Yes, yes. And so... You know it works. Um, I've seen submission guidelines where some magazine places want you to start with a famous quote. And so it really does set the tone, the quote you use, the person who said it or the source that it's from. So it really needs to be a strong theme for your whole article or book. So it it sets the tone. Now, I've also seen it work in fiction, Especially, you know how there's a lot of spin-offs, like on Jane Austen's Pride and Prejudice or Charlotte Bronte's Jane Eyre, even Charles Dickens' book. They'll pull a famous quote from uh, one of the classics and start it with that, and then the reader knows, oh, this is going to be like, like one of my right. favorites. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, and you know that's yeah. there's a lot of power to that. I just um, yeah. the other day. The other day we finished watching a series that we've been watching for a while on um, Netflix. My husband and I will sometimes just pick a series and then when we have time just sit and watch one of those together. And we finished a series. And so I typed into Google stories like, and then I typed the name of that series. And then it would find pages, you know, find different programs that would be similar to the one we just completed. We really do tend to be people who like to read the same type of thing. If I love that book and you quote that book, all of a sudden, by association, you're my friend. (laughs) Yes, that is so true. You've got the power of that. Yes, and that's where using a quote, you know, by something well-known, that's really a good place to go for that kind of lead. But you have to follow through <laughs> with the rest of your story then. Right, you know. right. Yeah. Yeah. So. yeah. And and can you overuse quotes? I mean, what would be, what would be overuse of that? Well, it depends. 
if you are writing a spin-off, okay, we're really following then, then you could use a lot. But if you're not, then you don't want to. You do want to be a lot more minimal, I would think, you know, yeah. because mm-hmm. otherwise it'd be imbalanced. Now, I'm thinking, switch. that was fiction, as I was thinking of there. Switching mm-hmm. over to nonfiction, um, you can overuse quotes in a nonfiction piece to where it's not your own uh, premise, your own thought process going through. You can overuse quotes where it's almost too hard to read even, you know. But Right. Right, but that's different. If you're just doing a compelling lead, there's one main quote you want to use. You right. know, not a bunch right there. And I think before we move on to just when using quotes, you want to be careful not to quote too much. As soon as you, um, as soon as you hit a certain level, which is, I'm going to say, it's not a specific. It kind of depends on the length of your work, and yeah. uh, it's different for an article compared to a book and things like that. But when you use more than a phrase or a sentence from somebody, all of a sudden you've got rights, um, permissions oh, that yeah. need to be gotten to, that you have to kind of think about these things, and a publisher has to take those things into consideration before they can say yes to publishing your book. Can you maybe address that for just a moment? Yes, that is a very good, good point to make. Um, anytime you are using a quote, well, now there's public domain quotes, and those you can Google to see if something is, is in public domain. You just have to kind of do a little searching there. But if you're using something that is owned by someone, it's called intellectual copyright even. I was, go, I was doing a proposal one time for a book on Picasso, Picasso. And I looked up their site. And even to use the name of him, you have to pay their, their whatever you call yeah. it, you know, the holders of their <laughs> the copyright holders. And yeah. there's another book where I just wanted to put the name of a song. I was not even quoting the song, just the title of the song in the book. And, again, I would have had to pay like $300 each time I used it. So you do have to be careful with that. And I know when I wrote, I used to write a lot of nonfiction for Focus on the Family magazines for parenting. And any time I used a quote uh, of someone who was living or something, I had to contact the person and get permission, you know, or their publisher and do that. And so that is, I'm glad you brought that up. That's an excellent point to remember. You have to be yeah. wise. Yeah, in my book, eBooks Idea to Amazon in 14 Days, um, there's there's a section in here about keeping it legal and about plagiarism. And there's yeah. even some sites that you can um, pass your work through that will red flag things for you like that so that you know even before you submit it, you know kind of where you're at with it. And that really does help. You want, you want to get a yes from a publisher. And yeah. so you, you want to not set them up for huge fees just because you didn't know you were doing that, that would be the, the worst way to go about it. If you know you're doing it and it's necessary and it makes all the difference in the article or the book, then, of course, that's worth it. But if you if you don't even realize you're you're triggering those kind of red flags for them, that's a problem. So, exactly. Good. Okay. Especially in the Internet today, because I know our church was do, doing a newsletter that I was involved with. We had to call different publishers and ask if we could even quote one line out of different books, and they just said no. Because we're putting yeah. our newsletter online, it's just like no. <laughs> so yes, good yeah, point. yeah, it's it's uh, it's maybe a little more complex than we think when we're yes. just looking at it on the outside. <laughs> well, we're going to take our last break here and come back and talk about descriptions of settings using questions and a bonus tip. But don't go away. Christian Women's Event at womensevents.info. You can find events to attend. Learn how to plan amazing events for your group or publicize your own upcoming Christian women's events. It's all available to you at womensevents.info. Just click your state to find all the major women's events coming to your area, or type in the month and year you'd like to attend an event to see all your options nationwide. It's that easy. If you want to promote an event, just click Add Event. Event publicity is available on a per-event basis or free to members. Finally, If you want to learn how to host awesome events, retreats, and well-attended conferences, click Event Planner Training. Once again, it's available a la carte or included in the membership. 
It's all online and here for you 24-7, anytime you have time, at womensevents.info. That's www.womensevents.info. Welcome back. This is Marnie Swedberg, our guest today. Nancy I. Sanders is doing some writer's training here with us, helping us understand how to make a great first impression using one or more of the eight solid strategies to craft a compelling lead. Nancy, is there ever a time where you wanted to combine two or three of them? Um, you can combine them, yes. Uh, if you're... If you're thinking of paragraph or whole entire page of your opening. Mm-hmm. You know, rather than just I was thinking with sentence. the repetitive sound, you almost have mm-hmm. to combine them because you're just not going to go sniff, 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 period. Right, <laughs> exactly. something after that. Exactly. <laughs> so, so, yeah. yeah, so there would be, a, there would be a, you know, a time when you would actually use more than one. But again, like we said earlier in the program, the main key then is no matter what you're starting with, no matter which one of these compelling leads you're starting with, you're going to make sure that you are using the rest of the book or I guess that you're putting the compelling lead with the book that or the article that's going to really build and develop that and bring it to a conclusion where the beginning made sense all the way through. Yes, yes. So. Yeah. Well, let's go ahead and talk about the description of a setting. And I think really when I think about these eight, um, that's the one that I probably am the most familiar with. Okay, okay. And that's these are for stories where the setting is almost like a main character. The setting is so mm-hmm. important. You know, and so especially us as adults, we love to read books of a certain setting or a certain community, you know, and so that's very important. Um, children aren't as much. You will will not find this in as many children's stories until you hit the young adult level. Um so if you want setting to play a key role, whether it's the time or the era or the place, that's all part of setting, then you can choose the description of setting as your compelling lead. And one of my favorite examples, it was in a classic by Mary Stewart called The Ivy Tree. And I just wanted to read this to you. The opening sentence is, I might have been alone in a painted landscape. The sky was still in blue. The high cauliflower mm. clouds over towards the south seemed to hang without movement. It continues describing the sen- setting. And then in the fourth paragraph it says, If I had been asked to define my thoughts, they would all have come to one word, England. So, you know, you're just uh-huh. loving people who love England, yes. And then it concludes right. at the bottom of the first page, at the end of the fifth paragraph, it concludes the description of the setting. It says, I might have been the first and only woman in it, Eve, sitting there in the sunlight and dreaming of Adam. And so mm. in this book, setting is very important. So this technique really works well. It brings up your your examples bring up a question that isn't really about um, first impressions or compelling leads. It's more about generally writing. When you're writing children's books, is it is it um, most common to write in first person or second person for children's books, or is it like a half and half? Well, it again depends sometimes on the editor's preference. There are mm-hmm. some editors who prefer first person. Um, and it also it changes as trends change. Um, yeah. Recently, there was a lot of first-person interest, I, 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 you know, I am right. this, I am that, yeah. And so um, it's good to do research if you're going to start writing a children's book. Just look at the current published books the publisher's doing. If you see a mishmash, you can do whichever. Um, okay. I am yep. right now, yeah, I'm right now working on a, series that I'm writing that I haven't pitched to anybody yet, and I want the reader to connect with the main character so it's all first person. I am this. I am that. So, yeah. Right. Right. Is one easier than the other for you? That's harder. First person is harder for me. Okay. So it's easier to say he did this or she did Uh, that. That's easier for me. But different people have different things they feel comfortable with. And I really, I really loved your under um, 
under the character trait of the compelling lead, I loved your idea of actually interviewing your fictitious character so that you get to know that. And I would think that that would help make that first person writing a little bit easier than it would be otherwise. It does. It really does, yes. Yeah, good. Okay, and our eighth craft is um, a question, asking a question. Yes, yes, and questions. You know, it's almost as if if you can't think of which one's right, use a question. <laughs> oh, really? Isn't that yes. interesting? So that's the fallback. Okay. Yes, a question will draw your reader in because it asks them a question. Sure. They have to mm-hmm. keep going. Right. And so, yeah, and so I know I have a four-book series that just came out with um, Zonder Kids. They're biographies for kids, ones on Get to Know Jesus, Get to Know Mary. There's four books. And they're nonfiction, and they're, I'm looking in here, they're like 120 pages of nonfiction, and I was thinking, how am I going to get a kid in second or third grade to want to read these books? And I thought, you know what, I could ask them a question. So I actually started each of these books, four books, with a question. And I really felt that it accomplished a good purpose. It drew them in and helped them to get into the book. Are you able to read those to us, um, at least oh, yeah. a couple of them, or give us an yeah. example? Okay. So for the book, Jesus, Get to Know Jesus, I wrote the question, do you know who the President of the United States is? Because you know, every kid in elementary school learns that. And so then I went on to say how famous the President is. It's easy to learn about a President's life. But then I said, but Jesus is the most famous person who ever lived. But how do you learn about his life? He lived so long mm. ago. And so that's, mm-hmm. I really felt that drew them in. And then for yeah. the book, Mary, I wrote, have you ever seen a nativity set at Christmas? You know, I tried mm-hmm. to hear, tried to ask a question that a kid would go, oh, yeah, you know, yeah, they would know. And so then I went on to say how a nativity set shows Mary and Joseph are part of the story, but I said, but they don't tell the whole story about what happened. Mm. And then, then I tell about Mary and, and what goes on. And then for Apostle Paul, I wrote the question, have you ever heard good news? And I asked mm-hmm. him like about a birthday party, about something. And then I went on to explain how Paul was a man who heard good news and it changed his life. So... Mm-hmm. So the, yeah, so there's where I used So the with yours, it was interesting. Uh, when you first said ask a question, I was thinking ask kind of a, a question where they wouldn't know the answer. But in all three of these examples, you've asked them a question that actually made them feel comfortable and like they can yeah. relate. Like this is something I'm interested in because I've already once heard good news or I have seen a nation. Yes. <laughs> so yes, exactly. it's, it's actually bringing them, I own this book because I know the yes. answer to the question. Yes. Oh, interesting. Very good. Now, thank you. And on a different level, like for fiction, because that was nonfiction, I really battled over that compelling lead, how to get the kids to right. pick up this nonfiction book. You know? Right. Now, for fiction, you can really lead them on. I'm doing a fiction series right now where I decided to open with a question, and I have the main character asking the reader a question, and then they have they follow along, you know, as he's finding the answer. So they don't know the answer to that question, you know. Okay, so either way so, works. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, great. So. Well, I know we're nearing the end of the program here, and you do have a little bonus for us, some tips to wrap up the ending, to tie back into the lead and leave the reader with a huge dose of satisfaction. Yes. Now, again, if you're looking at books, you may find books that don't do this, but we're talking about the great books and the books that are at the highest level. The ones we want to write, right? (laughs) Yes, the ones we want to write. So the bonus tip is after you're done writing your manuscript, take time to write a compelling beginning and then tie it into a compelling ending. So you want to wrap up your story like in a package. And so here is, I have two examples. In I'd Be Your Princess by Catherine O'Brien, we already read the first sentence was dialogue. If you were a king, I'd be your princess, said the little girl to her father. 
so they opened it with dialogue. You flip to the back of that book, and here's the very last sentence. Yes, if you were a king, I'd be your princess, the little girl said. Mm. See how they wrap that up. The beginning and the ending are almost the same sentence. And and I, oh, go ahead. Oh, I've talked to I've talked to writers, and there are some writers who they've got to have that in order to write the book. There are others yes. who write the whole book and then create the beginning and ending. Yes, exactly. And yeah. the the one that I think is just masterful in fiction is the classic, the Ivy Tree. We had talked about the opening, how she wrote with a description of the setting. So I wanted to read the beginning and the ending real quickly to you here, so you can see how she did this. I might have been alone in a painted landscape, is her opening sentence. The sky was still in blue, and the high cauliflower clouds over towards the south seemed to hang without movement. And she goes on to conclude, I might have been the first and only woman in it, Eve, sitting there in the sunlight and dreaming of Adam. You flip to the last page, and here's what she has. I might have been alone in a painted landscape, which is the exact first sentence of the book. The sky was still and had that lovely deepening blue of early evening. So she's talking about the sky again. She continues to describe the clouds. And then she says, It might have been the world before life began. I might have been the first and only woman in it, sitting there, dreaming of Adam. Well, it's almost an exact repetition of her opening, only very refreshingly different because now we know that Adam was the man that she loved. Hmm. And so we didn't know that in the beginning of the book. And she almost used the same words, the same picture to draw, and she brought it full circle. And so any time we can wrap our story up and write the compelling beginning and tie it back into our ending, it just gives us, the reader, a sense of satisfaction as well mm. as the author, as you say. <laughs> right, you can just yeah, feel yeah. that. Thank you at the end. Yes, yes. Ending it on that good <laughs> note where you made me feel like there's closure and it was good, yeah. and I'm glad I spent my time here. <laughs> exactly. Oh, oh, Nancy, this all just flown by. Thank you so much for being here today. Oh, thank you for having me. It's been a joy, Marnie. You know, and if people go over, your website is nancyisanders.com. If people go over to your website, what will they find there? Well, they'll find a different zones you can go to. Um, things for writers. I have a whole section on things if you want to find tips and articles for writing. I have a section there where you can click on my blog and follow along. That's mostly focused for children's writers. I have a section where you can find the books that I that I write. Um, there's a section for Christians, devotions, different devotions and online sites that I write for that. So there's just a lot of fun stuff there to find. Awesome. And, of course, you can find her book called Yes, You Can Learn How to Write Children's Books, Get Them Published, and Build a Successful Writing Career. It's all over at nancyisanders.com. Well, Nancy, so grateful that you could be here today. And, you guys, um, this will be archived. You can listen afterwards and, of course, get the download notes um, there at marnie.com at the Marnie. Thanks so much, Nandy. Nancy. Thank you, Marnie. I appreciate it. It's been a joy. <laughs> okay, and thank you, everybody. Um, once again, enough of you joined us live that we were able to uh, make it on the front page of Blog Talk Radio. That's always so much fun, and so many of you listen to the archives later. So grateful that you do that. I know a lot of you listen right at Blog Talk Radio, but even more of you listen all around the Internet on um, radio blocks that have been put into people's websites, and you can put into your website if you want. Just go to Blog Talk Radio, Marnie's Friends, and you'll find the um, little insert there or also iTunes. There's many different places. And, of course, the Membership Zone has all of the trainings that we've ever done in the past. Thank you for being here. We'll see you again next time. Have a wonderful day. Bye-bye.
Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW group. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.